This is the Education Gadfly Show. I don't mean to brag, but I'm a bit of a pinball wizard. Surprising, yeah. Is there a skill associated with pinball? What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, John Bailey. John, welcome back to the show. Oh my gosh, it's so great to be back. That must mean we're talking about COVID. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but John, the thing is, usually you're here because there's some horrible COVID emergency. A Delta wave strikes. Oh, better call John Bailey. The Omicron (laughs) wave strikes. Get Bailey on the podcast. I promised you at some point we would have you on when there was no emergency to talk about. And here it is. Uh, Instead, we're going to just do your crystal ball thing. We're going to ask you what we should expect this year if there is another wave. For people that somehow don't know John Bailey, he is a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I guess that means you do not live at the American Enterprise Institute, (laughs) like some other people. You've been researching COVID-19 a whole bunch, but you're also famous, and I mean that, famous, at least in our world, for sending out the daily COVID-19 policy update via your Substack newsletter. It's really fantastic. And it means that you are staying up to date on everything COVID-19 related, which is great for the rest of us because you help us stay smart on all these things. So welcome back to the show, John. Oh, great. It's so good to be with you. Yes, it does mean we're going to talk about COVID. Let's do that on Ed Reform Update. Well, we should at least acknowledge that recently, of course, there were the terrible, terrible test scores that came out from the NAEP about kids during the pandemic. It wasn't a surprise that test scores were down, perhaps a surprise that the devastating decline that we did see. 13 points in reading for Black nine-year-olds, just awful. Declines across the board, but worse for the lowest achieving kids. Of course, we'll debate how much of that was because of school closures. It sure seems likely a whole lot of it if not most of it. But of course, kids went through a whole lot of other terrible things in the last two years as well, including even last year, a whole lot of disruptions. You know, we expected a year ago, oh, back to normal, everything's going to be great. And then it got hit by Omicron and everything went to hell. Kids were out for long quarantines and such. So what can we expect, John? Right now we're in a good place COVID-wise, I think, here in September. But most people would say we should expect some sort of wave to hit us. If that hits us, are we going back to quarantines? Are we going back to closures? What do you think? First of all, thank goodness we're starting the new school year at least somewhat stable. I mean, this time last year, Delta was just wreaking havoc on schools in terms of sending kids into quarantine and really taking out of commission a lot of essential staff at schools, including Mm -hmm. school bus drivers and a lot of teachers and just depleted substitute polls. You're hearing some of that popping up around the country right now, but not nearly as much as we did last year. That's good. You know, back to school night and my kids' middle school, not a single mention of COVID. Nothing. Zero. I think folks, whether the pandemic is over, I think a lot of people are over the pandemic. There's the pandemic fatigue is just definitely, we're seeing that in survey data, like the New York Times just had a survey this week and it showed how people are how concerned they are about COVID. And they broke it out by sort of political spectrum. And you had pretty much everyone was just moderately concerned. And progressives were the ones that were most super concerned. Their decline in terms of concern has just been steep. So they're kind of catching up to where the rest of the country is. So the good news is like we're starting, at least not in a wave, we're starting with a lot more tools. There's vaccines available for kids and for younger children that weren't available this time last year. You have therapeutics uh, that are available. 
And hopefully schools have used the last better part of the year to make some preparations with upgrading their HVAC equipment and just making other preparations should they be needed. The other thing that just happened last night, which is the CDC uh, recommended the updated COVID Mm -hmm. boosters. These are the boosters that have been designed for the most dominant variant of the virus, the Omicron variant that's sweeping the country over the last couple of weeks here. And so their hope is that by approving these boosters, it gives people a little leg up for what other variants might emerge over the next coming year here. And it sounds like they went to great pains yesterday to say that uh, some of the boosters might be available for younger children sometime in the fall here. So more tools in the toolbox, hopefully to keep more kids in school. Let's talk about kids and then there's adults, right? Kids, we've known all along in general that COVID-19 hasn't presented a terrible threat to most kids. Though we also know that not that many kids have gone out and actually gotten vaccinated, fewer than we were hoping. But many of them have gotten COVID-19. So there's some question about how many kids out there are really susceptible to serious illness. Then there's the adults. I mean, the reason we shut down the schools or kept them closed for so long The real reason we would probably agree is that teachers and other staff were worried about getting sick and dying before there were vaccines. Well, now we've got vaccines and boosters and the therapeutics. Let's say there's another wave, a bunch of people get sick, teachers, unions want to see aggressive quarantines or even closures. Is that off the table or could that come back? I think it's off the table for most of the country. I don't think it's off the table for some part. You saw the Chicago Teachers Union wanted a lot of the same COVID protocols in place as last year, which is a little strict. Uh, You were seeing this debate playing out in California. They were going to have a vaccine requirement that only more recently got relaxed. I think in some of the more heavily unionized areas, you could see the unions wanting to exert more stricter protocols. But a lot of this is like, it's really hard to forecast. In my mind, the way I keep thinking about it is COVID variants are a little bit like hurricanes. You can have really intense hurricanes that create a lot of death and a lot of destruction and send a lot of people to hospitals. You can have ones that are very big but don't have a lot of death and hospitalizations. Mm -hmm. And because they're weaker, they're a weaker storm. That's a little bit what Omicron was. Omicron was a really big hurricane, Mm -hmm. but it didn't send as many people to the hospital and and it didn't create as many deaths. And it's going to be hard to kind of know what kind of hurricane, quote, quote, we're going to be facing in the next couple of months here. If it's a really intense storm, it's going to need stronger measures and protocols. But It's really hard to kind of forecast that right now. I think the thing where we're dropping the ball is that I wish we had seen the CDC, the NIH, even the Department of Ed doing more robust research around some of these protocols. I think it's crazy where at this point we still don't have great research on the effectiveness of masks or the effectiveness Mm -hmm. of some of these other social distancing. You know, we have still a lot of theories and a lot of sort of other studies that painted a picture, but a little bit blurry. Once again, we've we've seen some of our medical institutions just let us down with not more robust research to answer some of the questions that a lot of schools and a lot of teachers and a lot of parents have. Back to the hurricane question. I know you don't know for sure, but you've been reading all of this stuff. I mean, in your gut, would you be surprised if there's not another hurricane? If somehow we just... I would be really surprised. This time last year, we were just beginning to realize the wave that was Delta, which was a, a very bad wave. And then yeah. Omicron wasn't even on our radar. Omicron popped up around Thanksgiving of last year. And, you know, given the way this virus seems to mutate, and also the fact that, again, you have broad swaths of the population around the world that just have not been vaccinated, which gives 
places for this virus to mutate and, and to outcompete. There's worries about it. I do think the vaccines have proven to be pretty durable. They, they wane in effectiveness, but that gives us some protection. And we just saw this presented at the CDC yesterday. The reinfection rate with the Omicron variant was much, much higher than it was with Delta or with the original strain. And so that's what I think we have to sort of worry about is a variant that emerges over the next year that tends to be more infectious, escapes some of our immunization that we've developed by being infected or escapes some of the effectiveness of the vaccines. That's what we have to, to worry about, not obsessively a worry about, but make some, hopefully make sure we have preparations and plans in place. Well, you have succeeded, John. Here we are without a wave going on right now. And yet you are still bummed me out providing this. So no, it's, it's important. Look, we've got to stop being surprised, right? It was like Charlie Brown with the football and Lucy. We've seen this movie before. Yeah. There's another wave coming. We should be ready for it. Some of the readiness, I think, as advocates for kids is to be ready to make the case that we do everything we can to keep kids in school unless the public health is extremely clear that that is dangerous. Yeah. I mean, um, that bar is so much higher now. We just cannot send kids home without it being absolutely clear that there's a public health benefit there. To your point, the NAEP results this week, and also even more troubling in some ways was the NWA data that came out, mm -hmm. I think two or three weeks ago that said, based on the current pace of recovery, a lot of these kids are going to take five years to dig out of the academic holes we've dug for them. We're going to need a lot of all hands on deck to get these kids caught up. Well, well said. Hey, John, thanks for coming back. As mm. always, John Bailey, non-resident senior fellow at AEI. If you still somehow are not getting his Substack, you should get it. The COVID-19 policy update. John, great having you on. And mm. anytime you have an idea for a topic that's not COVID related that you would like to talk about on the podcast, you let me know. We'd love to Oh have my you. gosh, I'm going to send you a whole list right now. Awesome. That sounds great. Thanks, John. Thanks, Mike. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. So it's very exciting. We are about to gather in Columbus, the entire Thomas B. Fordham Institute staff. Are you looking forward to this? I am. Gosh, we get to see our colleagues in Ohio in person, not on a Zoom call. That's great. And we're going to do a get to know your colleague exercise, Mike. So I can't wait to see <laughs> what that's going to be all about. Yes, I know. I'm always pushing for cheesy icebreakers. I'm a big fan of trust falls, but I, I seem to be the only one who has that opinion. So yes, we're going to try to make it non-cheesy. And I think pinball is in our future as well. For it people is. who are up for a late night. Like old school pinball machine, right? Like that's yeah. really what it is. Not anything more high tech than that. That's cool. I don't mean to brag, but I, I'm a bit of a pinball wizard. Is That's there really almost surprising? Yeah. Is there no. skill associated with pinball? I've never really gotten the skill of pinball. No. I'm just teasing. I, I was going to say that they wrote that song about me, but I'm not that old. The pinball <laughs> wizard song That's must right. have been what you and I, Amber, were still uh, in diapers. Probably. Yeah. I remember when I used to try to get a song tied to the research study, whatever it was. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. my gosh. That was a long time ago. But <laughs> and speaking <laughs> of research. <laughs> oh, yes. Sorry. Good, good segue. David's got to get back probably to like a crying baby or something. Yes. Amber, what research study do you have? All right. We have got a new descriptive report out from Ron Zimmer and Mark Barron's that examines whether private schools that participate in Indiana's statewide voucher program, Cream Skim, 
by enrolling high-achieving, less challenging, or less costly to educate students, or whether they push out low-achieving, more challenging, and more costly to educate students. I think we're familiar with the research as it's done in the charter realm, but this time they did this descriptive analysis for cream skim and push out in the, uh, in the voucher world. So they've got eight years of data, 2010-11 through 2017-18 from the Indiana Department of Ed. They've got information on students attending district charter, magnet, and private schools, including the voucher and the non-voucher kids, all of whom I think we know must participate in statewide testing, including the private schools participating in the voucher program per Indiana law. The study was conducted before the recent expansion of the program to include more middle-class families. But under the old law, a family of four could make no more than around 72000 to qualify for a voucher. Seems like important context to me. Analysts are looking at the students who switch schools in between school years, and they can also distinguish between those structural moves, meaning that, you know, you just graduate from the terminal grade of your school and you go to the next higher grade level school, or a non-structural move, which means they switched for any other reason. You mean you could have switched in the middle of the year or for any other reason. They focus on math and ELA achievement and SPED and ELL status, since those are the categories of kids that are generally more costly to educate. For the push-out analysis, they examine whether students made this non-structural move They want to see whether, again, these low-achieving or costlier-to-educate voucher-receiving private school kids are more likely to transfer out of a private school and into a district school compared to low-achieving, more costly-to-educate voucher-eligible kids who make a move from their TPS. Okay, so these are the kids who are voucher-eligible but didn't take the voucher. So now we look at whether they move from the TPS and they've got the same characteristics as the other group. So they're looking at whether these kids were below average in math and ELA achievement relative to their peers in their school And there again, they're also looking at the SPED and ELL status. Real quick, for the cream skim analysis, they're examining either a structural or a non-structural move between years because presumably you could be motivated to cream skim a student regardless of whether they reach this terminal grade or not. Uh, They look at whether a student has above average achievement relative to their peers in their school each year and whether they have no discipline issues because in this instance, they actually have suspension and expulsion data from the public schools. They don't have that from the private ones, which is why they couldn't look at discipline relative to push out. Here, they're examining the differences in the relative likelihood of making a move for a high achieving, less disruptive, less costly to educate kid who receives a voucher to attend a private school compared to the same types of voucher eligible kids who make a move without a voucher. They find no evidence that private schools are cream skimming, higher performing, less disruptive or less costly to educate students from district schools. They also do not find strong evidence that push-out occurs relative to ELL and students with special needs, but they do find evidence consistent with the claim that the lowest achieving voucher students are being pushed out of private schools at a modestly higher rate than their similarly low-achieving voucher-eligible TPS peers and their higher-achieving voucher private school peers. So again, this non-structural move rate, that's the one not associated with leaving the school anyway because you graduated from the terminal grade. Uh, For those low-achieving voucher students is anywhere from one to three percentage points higher than their low-achieving voucher-eligible TPS peers, and then it's three to nine percentage points higher than their high-achieving voucher peers. So that is a lot. This was not a causal study. 
But I'll just leave you on whether low achieving voucher kids are getting pushed out of their private schools is one that should need some additional study. I have to say with, you know, as you were doing the lead in and all of that, I was expecting a lot more cream skimming and pushing out, to be honest, (laughs) (laughs) because in charter world, there are policies to keep that from happening, at least that attempt to keep that from happening, especially on the cream skimming front, you know, whereas with voucher programs, in most places, private schools do still get to use their admissions processes, mm-hmm. and they still also, you know, have some control over discipline and the like. So you would expect, I would expect, I was expecting more than what we see here. So the fact that no cream skimming, really, and modest push out, better news for private school choice from an equity perspective than you might think. David? Mike, push out is such a slippery term. Yes. I don't have a better term that I'd like to offer right now, but I think it's worth noting that it's not as though, and I know that this is not what the researchers claim, the evidence is consistent with claims of push out, but nobody observes a teacher pushing Mm -hmm. a child out of school. And a better way to put it is the kids are leaving. And they're leaving Mm -hmm. for so many reasons. I was just sitting here thinking about it. I mean, they could be leaving because. The academics are hard Hard. Mm -hmm. or too easy. I mean, I don't think that one is probably the reason, but they could be leaving because they don't make friends. They could be leaving because the commute is too long. There are a lot of reasons that they could be leaving that are pretty legitimate in my mind from a sort of the standpoint of the school that don't really implicate it in any wrongdoing. Where I can imagine a difference between private schools and public schools, honestly, that's totally benign and doesn't really reflect poorly or well on on, on either one. I'm not sure where we're going to get to the bottom of it. The term push out. A little nefarious, right? Mm -hmm. It's widely used, but it is a little bit accusatory Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that I don't totally agree with. Yeah, that's a good point. So we should just talk mm -hmm. about what? Retention. You know, I get that from an outcome standpoint. We don't want to see more kids at the low end getting put, I don't know what, getting, leaving, <laughs> leaving. School, right? We don't want to see differential sorting, but you know, if you were going to push kids out, I expected it to be the sped kids. I thought it was going to be behavior. Well, they couldn't well, do behavior. They can't. Well, okay. That's right. I'm going to be politically incorrect again. It's strongly correlated, right? That's the one I would have expected is mm-hmm. kids who are difficult to serve. They couldn't do behavior directly, but I'm a little surprised by the results we can have a discussion about what the policy should be. I know over the years, I have had this desire to make the private school choice programs, the publicly funded ones, look more like charter school programs. You know, I'm more comfortable with more accountability, especially for results uh, than many uh, of the more libertarian folks in the school choice movement. But look, these are private schools. And if you support Mm -hmm. private school choice, part of that is the notion that you're allowing these schools to be private, meaning they do not serve everybody. And if you support school choice, you say, hey, that's okay. We don't need every school to be everything to everyone. It would change the nature of some of these schools if they're a school that mostly serves fairly high achieving kids and the kid comes in who's just way behind. I think people in school choice have got to be willing to say, hey, this school may not be very good at serving a kid who's way behind. And as long as that kid has a lot of other good options of schools that are good at serving kids who are way behind, many of which are in the charter school movement, that's okay. Now, I understand there's plenty of people on the left that think if public money is involved, you should take everybody, you should try to serve everybody, but that's not the policy that has been embraced. And yet, sounds like in Indiana, 
it's not so far away from that ideal. Even though they're allowed to not retain everybody, they sound like they do a pretty good job retaining kids, at least compared to the nearby schools. I'm like, I'm kind of on the left on that one that you mentioned, just for the record. <laughs> but it sounds like I should stand down, at least as far as Indiana is concerned. Maybe this doesn't need to be a concern that you have uh, on this one. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. You got plenty of other you. ones, David. That was very you know? condescending, yes. That was the royal you. Well, thank you, Amber. That's an important one and much It is. The school year has begun. The fall is here. We are cranking with research. That was a, a good way to kick it off. But that is, alas, all the time that we have for this week. And so until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Signing the Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.